Hello and welcome back to The Forge. We are continuing our study in the book of James. In the book of James, we are now in chapter 5. We are nearing the end. This is the final chapter in the book of James. And as we get into this final chapter, we'll start off with a review of the different tests. I've been approaching the book of James as a series of tests. And you will remember, we've talked about the test of faith, the test of obedience, test of true religion, the test of brotherly love, the test of good works, the test of the tongue, the test of motivation, the test of submission, and I would add that that's submission to God. And now we come to our ninth test, in the book of James, the test of trust. In what are you placing your trust? Or in who are you placing your trust? Do you trust in your money? Do you trust in your retirement plan or the family business? Do you manipulate the legal system, the way the laws are written for your own benefit? Are you even in a position where you can manipulate the court itself? Are you trusting in friends or family or others? Are you trusting in people? So these are questions that we're going to examine as we get into the book of James. And we're, like I said, beginning with this ninth test, the test of trust. So let's read, as is our practice, we will read the entire chapter and then we'll go back and make our comments. James chapter 5 verse 1, this is the word of the living God. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job 
and seen the end intended by the Lord. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call out for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So in verse 1 here, we have the phrase, come now. And I haven't really made a big deal about this, but there are 54 commands or what we call imperatives in the book of James. I didn't really emphasize that in our study of the book of James because I really wanted to take it in this direction of evaluation, evaluation of our own hearts and our own lives. And certainly if we've read the entire book of James, which we just finished, we read the whole book, you've heard those 54 imperatives. If you count hypotheticals, uh, the number rises from 54 to 60. And so what is an imperative? It is something that is considered essential to emphasize. It needs to be done. There's a sense of urgency with it to get it done. And here in this very first verse of chapter 5, we see an example of that. So a challenge for you uh, might be to go back through the book of James and uh, see how many imperatives you can find if you go through and count them one by one. That said, we have this beginning of the sentence, come now. This is an invitation to erring believers to come back into submission and humility. The rich are called to take the steps we covered in James chapter 4, verse 7 through 10. Go back and read that and listen to that. We're talking there about what? Coming back into a, career, a correct relationship with God. So again, being rich is not necessarily evil, but the evil rests in the heart of man. It depends on where we are placing our trust. James is telling those who have gained from unfair working and suffering of others that they will get what's coming to them. Their self-centered lifestyle is bringing corruption and misery into their lives. And it's compounded by God's merciful discipline upon them. The very things in which they have placed their trust, the security of rich garments, gold and silver, that has actually become a curse to them. 
And I would remind us here that James's comments are directed uh, to members of the church. These are believers. Remember that from the very first verse of the very first chapter in the book of James, who was James addressing? Remember that this is an epistle, which means that it's a letter to the church. So these are believers he's talking to. These believers, through their exploitation of the poor, have grown fat off the suffering of others. And James tells them that they might as well start lamenting now. Just look at how uh, we live today and look at what the churches uh, are around you are known for in their community. And again, I would just make a separation between the Lord's church and what I call religious activity. So we justify our greed in the name of economic security. We call it fiscal responsibility. Um, I knew a professing Christian at a church where I was on staff who bragged to me about how he had ripped off the uh, do-it-yourself chain store in our town um, because one of their employees had placed the wrong price on flooring, which he was about to purchase. And then when he went up to go purchase the flooring, it actually rang up at the correct price, which was different than the posted price. And he pushed the manager and he was able to get it um, at the mistaken price, the wrong price. And he was really rather proud of himself. In my view, it's an obvious mistake that an employee made. And you might be listening to that and you might be thinking, what's the big deal? Um, it's just business. It's not my fault if they put up the wrong sign. And so I would just simply point to you that what we have here is a case where something is legal, but it's not ethical. It's true, they put up the wrong price. And the manager and the employees, they should be uh, looking out for that kind of stuff. They need to be on top of their game and put the right price on the right product. That's exactly right. But I refer to this as the sin of legal theft. And, you know, if it were to happen today, I would hope that I would have the nerve to confront and rebuke the member of my church. In this particular case, I just looked at this church member. Uh, actually, he wasn't a member. He was just somebody who attended once in a while when he felt like it. Uh, but he was a professing believer. And I didn't make any comment. I was afraid to make a comment. I admit that I didn't want to confront the guy. But I hope that if the same thing were to happen today, that I would um, react differently. Um, it's a sad thing when Christians will not pay what they should because they're not required to by the law. There's some religious folks, and notice I'm using the term religious folks, <laughs> uh, that they think nothing of shortchanging somebody or being out for dinner and not leaving a tip. And listen, Christians, we ought to be known as the biggest tippers in town. We should give uh, generously. We should be known for our generosity. And I'm telling you, even if the service is bad, even if a waitress or waiter they're not doing a very good job. They're not taking care of you. Um, what a blessing it would be to them. Uh, you think they know they're not doing a good job? They're fully aware they're not doing a good job in most cases. In most cases, they know they're not on their A game. 
but wouldn't it be great to bless them with a generous tip anyway? See, the sinner, the unrepentant person, they'll give uh, gifts when everything is going smoothly. So what differentiates the Christian from the sinner? Well, we ought to give gifts regardless. We ought to be giving a tip. We don't know what that person may be going through. So give them a large tip. And how are you going to be a witness to them when you don't tip? You can tell this is kind of a hot button for me. But we ought to be known for our generosity, and that's the bottom line. So in verses 2 through 3, James is telling the rich that their fine clothes and their money will not last. He points out that even in the present, it begins to fade. For a first century man, uh, the symbols of wealth were fine clothing and a big fat uh, money purse bulging. Uh, James is reminding his readers that the wealth that they see in the present world is transitory. It dissipates before our very eyes. And I have shown how there's steps to sin uh, in previous podcasts in the book of James. There's steps to repentance also here in the book of James. Now I want to point out some other steps that we can find right here. Notice what these rich believers are doing. Step number one, they chose to trust in the uncertainty of riches for security. And I would cross-reference us here to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 through 19. And it states this, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Here again, we see a harmony between Paul, who wrote 1 Timothy, and James. So step number two, as a result of this misplaced trust, they have heaped up treasure in the last days. Now this phrase, the last days, really speaks of the time following the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Any time period after these events can really be called the last days. I don't want to chase a tangent here too far, but someone recently asked me if I thought we were living in the last days. And I said, yes, I do believe we are living in the last days, but I think you and I define last days differently. I define last days as the time period that started when Jesus ascended into heaven and we have the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2. From that point, we have been living in what could biblically be called the last days. You say, hey, that's been 2,000 years. Well, the last days are a long period of time. So what does it mean for us? What does this mean for us? It means that with this full knowledge of Christ's finished work, his death, burial, and resurrection, we ought to be living for eternity. And that's what this is about. We live for eternity. We're not living for the present. I'd like to also mention once again the stupidity of hoarding. And I know that may sound like I'm being insensitive, and I know there are those with serious mental disorders concerning hoarding, and we talked about that before. 
But I'm convinced that so much of what the Bible calls sin, our culture relabels it and we call it a mental disorder. How about this? Sin is a mental disorder. When the sin of our life, remember, when it reaches its full potential and growth, as James has already told us, it brings death. If someone is obsessed with material things to the point that they are hoarding their own garbage, um, it is insanity. <laughs> it is an insanity leaving, leading to death, and it's been brought on by a misplaced trust. And if that's not insanity leading to death, I don't know what is. The things of this world will decay. They do so before our very eyes, and yet we still want more. No matter how much you get, if you're seeking after the temporary pleasure it brings, you will always want more. Just a little bit more is never enough. One more time is never enough times. There will always be another and then another. Step three, in their pursuit of wealth, they have kept back wages by fraud from the workers. How easy it is to justify cheating others when wealth becomes our God. Consider Ananias and Sapphira from Acts chapter 5. The story there in short is that Ananias and Sapphira had lied to the Holy Spirit and they sought to keep back a portion of the money which was truly theirs to keep. The issue was not that they were keeping money that was truly theirs to keep. And if you read the account, you'll read that that's one of the things that's actually said. It was in your hands. You could have kept it. Their issue was that they claimed that they were giving 100% and that they were not giving 100%. They lied to the Holy Spirit. And so James details the charges against the arrogant rich. Not only have they failed to show compassion toward the poor, they've actually exploited the poor. The evil rich have used the sweat of the poor to gain wealth for themselves. They have not paid just wages, and in those days, they didn't have a minimum wage law. The law of God demands a just recompense for a worker's expended effort. To do otherwise is to cause a hurt, which in the end reaches the ear of God, which we'll be discussing a little bit later. The scriptures are clear on the issue, and thus the wealthy have no excuse. And here's what the Bible says in the Old Testament. You can look this up in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 13. It's in Deuteronomy 24, 15, Jeremiah 22, 13, Malachi 3, 5. And listen to what the Bible says. He murders his neighbor who deprives him of his living and who defrauds a hireling of his wages is a shedder of blood. Do you think that God takes this seriously? Exploitation is murder. And we see James has used these same words in his letter here. I would say that God takes this extremely seriously. So the person who exploits does so for their own self-pleasing and in the end it is never satisfying. 
to manipulate the structures of our government or our society from a position of power or self-gain is a very serious crime in the eyes of the judge of the universe. You are in a disgusting state when you find pleasure in the misery of others. And that is one reason why I don't like reality TV. It is neither reality and it's not TV. Step four, they lived on earth in pleasure and luxury without concern for others. I'd point out again that the sin here is not having the pleasure and luxury, but it is a condition of the heart. These folks gained their wealth through dishonest means and had no concern for others. The rich have set themselves up in extravagant luxury while others have nothing. And worse still, it's a luxury gained by the exploitation and the suffering of others. Again, such behavior is stupid because all they're doing is reinforcing their own condemnation on the day of judgment. And there is a trap of pleasure. Pleasure seeking for its own sake will always leave you wanting more. And since the thing which is bringing the pleasure cannot be separated from the behavior, it always leads to sin. People in this trap find themselves in uh, destructive and addictive patterns. And the only way to get free from that, to break free, is complete surrender to God. Only he can reverse the lifestyle and the habit pattern. And it almost always gets worse over time, these habit patterns. We see this habit pattern with pornography, with drug use, alcohol abuse, and the uncontrollable pursuit of money. Step number five, they condemned and murdered the just man. And this is probably in reference to some sort of a court action uh, that happened that James would be aware of. And it's basically something that was done against the poor who have no legal defense. And the truth is, with these five steps that we just talked about, we're not spiritually content. They were not spiritually content. And often as Christians, we are not spiritually content. Going back to 1 Timothy again, let's see what Paul says there in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. He says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith, and in their greediness pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So, once again, we see a harmony between James and Paul, We've already made references to Old Testament scriptures, and I love this kind of interweaving between all the scriptures and the cross-referencing because what it shows, as I've pointed out before, 
we have building blocks here. We have precept upon precept. We have principles that are built on other principles. But there's two considerations that I'd like to examine getting back here to the book of James. And these are believers who are more concerned with the careful planning and amassing of wealth than they are with heavenly things. Remember James's prior instructions from chapter 4 were to approach financial considerations by a particular phrase. Do you remember what he said? He said, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. If the Lord wills, we'll go to this city and buy and sell and make a profit. If the Lord wills. So the first consideration as we consider this passage is the injury that we do to others will be noted by God. God knows. And the cry of those that we abuse will come up to the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath, it says. And this is terrifying because this is the Old Testament title of the Lord of the armies who avenges his people. In Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21, another reference from another passage in the Bible, uh, Paul puts it this way. Repay no one evil for evil, having regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Interestingly, James is again in harmony with Paul. The author of Romans is Paul. And he in turn is quoting from Proverbs uh, chapter 25, verses 21 through 22. And I point these things out again so that you might see the building blocks of biblical truth. With this first point, these folks who are seeking after their own financial gain while hurting others apparently have no fear of the Lord who hears the cry of the abused. And there's clearly scriptural warnings. So the second consideration is their arrogance. They are in such pursuit of wealth and power that they do not realize what it's doing to their own hearts. And James compares it to an animal being fattened for slaughter. In the end, they would not only lose their possessions, but also what they might have gained for all eternity. Even worse, wealth stolen from the poor will condemn the rich on the day of judgment. The money they save and hold on to will only serve as evidence for the prosecution. So, by not being doers of the word, their faith was not sufficient to overcome the temptation toward riches. They were hearers, but not doers. Apart from radical repentance, as James has outlined in chapter 4, uh, and to which he calls them now in chapter 5, much of their life would be burned up like wood, hay, and straw, and the judgment uh, or Bema seat of Christ. And you can look that up in 1 Corinthians 
chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. We must also remember that the Lord will judge his people according to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30. Who's he going to judge? His people. His people. And our God is a consuming fire, it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29. So these passages speak not of eternal condemnation, but of a severe discipline visited upon unrepentant believers. These are the Lord's people that we're talking about here. We're going to go ahead and wrap up the first part of James chapter 5. I was going to try to cover it all in a single podcast, but James chapter 5 is going to be split into part 1 and part 2. Um, there really is no time limit on these things. We will take it verse by verse, and we will take as many segments as we need to get through the Word of God. With that being said, everyone, I want to thank you for listening, and I pray that God blesses you. I pray that you will grow in Him as you study His Holy Word. Until the next time, God bless you. Thank you.